Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're talking about politics and morality. We've done this a little bit before, mainly in reference to Machiavelli and Weber. We're going to do a little bit more contemporary stuff. And by contemporary, I mean, you know, Cambridge contemporary, last 50 years, a little bit more recent today. But of course, in the back half of the episode, we're liable to link stuff up with older things as we tend to do. Uh, so we have a list, and for our Patreon followers, they can see our reading list that we're working off of for this episode. Edmund has had a while to peruse it. Edmund, what did you think? What stood out to you? Yeah, well, uh, this list of readings uh, from uh, the topic codenamed Paul 11 on um, history of political thought and political philosophy in the um, 20th and 21st centuries, roughly. I think it's since, it's since 1890. Uh, this particular topic on politics and morality starts with um, some stuff in the interwar period, um, including um, uh, Karl Schmitt's The Concept of the Political, uh, Max Weber's Politics as a Vocation, and also um, some of the originators of the tradition of realism in international relations um, who were writing um, around that time and after and, and after the wars. So E.H. Carr, The Thirty Years' War, um, and Hans Morgenthau's Politics Among Nations. Uh, that one was uh, written and published. Um, in the in, in the post-war period, and I think one thread running through these texts is a certain dismay, um, and of course, knowing what happened in the twentieth century, an understandable and justified dismay at the way in which politics was failing to live up to people's moral aspirations and indeed their political aspirations. And I think that one problem that these theorists are dealing with furthermore is the difficulty that liberalism in particular has uh, with managing the supposed split between the political and the moral. And, um, for instance, um, Schmidt accuses the liberals of um, trying to apply a certain uh, moralistic vision of politics, um, but in a way that actually denies the political in the end. Uh, he says, although, liber- quote, although liberalism has not radically denied the state, it has, on the other hand, neither advanced a positive theory of state, nor on its own discovered how to reform the state, but has attempted only to tie the political to the ethical, 
and to subjugate it to economics. So Schmidt is not necessarily accusing liberals of uh, separating politics and morality. Indeed, this is something which Schmidt thinks on some level should be done, because for Schmidt, the political is an antagonism between uh, friends and enemies, where the enemy is a public enemy, labelled as such, uh, not for any particular moral reason, but simply because that is what politics is and must be, that the state has to, for it to continue to be a political state, uh, define itself by what it is not, um, and define itself in particular by identifying particular enemies of the state, targeting those enemies and thereby creating an identity of, of the citizens of the state who are friends uh, in opposition to, um, to enemies. And this is a thread that um, runs through a lot of contemporary literature. There's been a lot of efforts to revive Schmidt and try to uh, find a way of, in some way, moralizing this distinction um, by claiming that, well, maybe the friend-enemy distinction is something uh, like a, a, a critique of hierarchy, where the friends could be uh, the weak and the enemies could be the strong. But I think the difficulty here is that it forgets how for Schmidt this distinction is totally arbitrary. The friend-enemy distinction is not based on any particular set of moral criteria. It's just there, and it's not something that can be um, moralized, because um, for Schmidt to appeal to humanity is to cheat in politics. Uh, the point of the friend-enemy distinction is to get beyond that kind of moralism. Now, there is another answer to uh, the politics-morality um, division which doesn't try, um, as in Schmidt's case, to just lean into it and paint politics as something which is uh, can be about morality but doesn't adhere to any particular moral code. And that's, um, I think, an earlier text, Max Weber's Politics as a Vocation, uh, while Schmidt's concept of the political um, was um, published in the early 30s. Weber's Politics of Vocation was uh, a lecture that he delivered in 1919, where Weber argues that um, politics can be seen through two ethics, uh, or in a sense, two moralities, uh, an ethic of conviction and an ethic of responsibility, where an ethic of responsibility attends to the consequences of political actions, uh, particularly those consequences that uh, are relevant to the, to the nation as a whole, whereas an ethic of conviction will try to get to the ultimate principles, the ultimate moral principles of political action, and will try to pursue those regardless of their particular political effects. And Weber gives some mixed messages on whether these ethics are strictly reconcilable. Um, he says at one point, it is not possible to unite the ethic of conviction with the ethic of responsibility, nor can one issue uh, an ethical decree determining which end shall sanctify which means, if indeed any concession at all is to be made to this principle. And so here Weber is suggesting that well, it's difficult to know um, whether we can use, uh, or to what extent we can use, 
immoral ends to satisfy immoral means to satisfy a, a political or moral end. Um, because it's hard to know absolutely the relation between these two ethics. Indeed, they seem to be opponents. To be responsible seems to not be something that is, strictly speaking, aligned with convictions. To to maximise your means for pursuing an end um, might, in the end, violate the tenets of that end, because you might, as some contemporary uh, literature puts it, uh, well, near-contemporary literature particularly, uh, Michael Waltz's 1973 article on dirty hands, you might get your hands dirty in pursuing a particular moral goal you may have. In the process in politics, you will have to get your hands dirty. And this is something that, uh, a problem that can't be neatly avoided, partly because as Waltz says, if you want to abolish that kind of, uh, that kind of thing in politics, you'll have to get your hands dirty in the process to try to challenge those people who are getting their hands dirty in the first place. Yeah, so if you notice here, guys, we have antagonism in both Weber, who is a liberal in his theory, and in Schmidt, who is not a liberal in his theory. Schmidt positioning the political as in antagonism with the moral, and Weber as positioning an ethic of responsibility as in antagonism with an ethic of conviction. So for Weber, there are two ethics that are both framed as ethics, so both framed as kinds of morality, potentially which are in conflict. And for Schmidt, it's morality and politics framed as two separate normativities, but not both ethical, right? Mm. But in both cases, a conflict is set up. And the idea is that in politics, we have to behave in a way which is somehow abnormal from private life. And that this abnormal behavior that we're going to have will distress us in some way, potentially. Mm. because of its antagonism with ordinary private morality, right? Mm. That idea is in both the liberal view and the ostensible critique of the liberal view. And that conflict is a modern conflict, which supervenes both on modern liberal and modern illiberal views, right? Mm. So even though Schmidt and Weber are ostensibly in antagonism with each other because Weber views this conflict as internal to ethics and Schmidt views it as external, they're both viewing it in terms of a duality. Right, right. And I guess this is And the so r- when we carry this forward to Waltzer yeah, and yeah. we start talking about dirty hands theory, yeah. which is the more contemporary thing, dirty hands theory positions the political actor as having to get their hands dirty, as having to do things that are wrong in some sense for political reasons, right? So again, it involves this split between two different normativities, which might be classed as ethical, might be classed as as one being ethical, the other being non-ethical. But again, two different normativities that in some way compete with each other and exist alongside each other yeah. and cannot be interfacing. Yeah, yeah. And this makes sense of why uh, Waltzer positions the the uh, originator of the problem of dirty hands as Machiavelli. Um, he, Waltzer says Machiavelli is the first man, so far as I know, to state the paradox that I'm examining. The good man who aims to found or reform a republic must, Machiavelli tells us, 
do terrible things to reach his goal, like Romulus, the founder of Rome, um, the purported founder of Rome. He must murder his brother, like Numa. He must lie to the people. Sometimes, however, quote, when the act accuses, the result excuses uh, from the discourses on Livy. Uh, the sentence from the discourses is often uh, taken to mean that the politician's deceit and cruelty are justified by the good results he brings about. But if they were justified, it wouldn't be necessary to learn what Machiavelli claims to teach, how not to be good. It would only be necessary to learn how to be good in a new, more difficult, perhaps roundabout way. That is not Machiavelli's argument. His political judgments are indeed consequentialist in character, but his moral judgments are not. So what Waltz is saying is that um, in politics, even if we know something uh, to be wrong, even if the act accuses, the result may excuse. Uh, and the reason being that um, Waltzer says, quote, the deceitful and cruel politician is excused if he succeeds, only in the sense that the rest of us come to agree that the results were, quote, worth it, or more likely that we simply forget his crimes when we praise his success. Part because the crimes of the politician are often violent, and so those of us who are around to judge are generally those who survived. Yeah, yeah. And this, I guess, gets to a question of whether violence can be um, can c- c- can be moral because Weber positions politics as um, as an affair of the state and the state as a monopoly over the means of legitimate coercion or legitimate violence, and so politics for Weber is about legitimacy and violence about. Uh, about, on the one hand, coercion, threats and rewards, which will be implemented often through violent means, on the one hand, and through um, the kind of theatrical part of modern politics, where you're trying to perform to a crowd, to an audience, to try to get them to accept your authority. Um, and so I, I think these are two threads coming out of this, this literature. On the one hand, can violence be moral? And on the other hand, can hypocrisy be moral? And these are two related and, questions. And speaking of hypocrisy, David Runciman, my old supervisor at Cambridge, he wrote a book on political hypocrisy, which yeah. does a survey of different historical views on hypocrisy and whether or not it's successful, and David, uh, whether or not it's acceptable. And David comes out at the end of all of that and says, well, the, the state is violent, but if the state claims that it isn't about violence, if it claims that it has some kind of moral aim, which violence would often subvert, even though the state will inevitably have to act in a way which is hypocritical, the fact that it claims that it's bound by these values will have a restraining effect on it and cause it to be less violent than it would be if it didn't make these claims. So David says that if the only way to eliminate hypocrisy is to be honest about the violence of the state, and that means that the state's violence no longer needs to be concealed and therefore can be out and can happen much more frequently. Right. So the attempt by the state to lie and claim that it adheres to a moral vision, even though this is not true, nonetheless has a restraining effect, David argues. Now, I think again, 
that kind of view involves some kind of dualism between violence and morality. Yeah. Right? Where politics keeps getting associated with violence and violence is morally questioned. Right? Hmm. Now, if we zoom out a little bit, oftentimes when theorists in this literature are talking about morality, there's implicitly a particular kind of morality that is being invoked. But that particular kind of morality often kind of slides under the radar. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because the word morality gets used, but there's usually something they have in mind that they're not making explicit, right? So they, they can't be utilitarians, for instance, because utilitarians right. don't have this problem. For yeah. utilitarian, it's straightforwardly the case that if an act has consequences that are outweigh its negatives, that act just is the correct thing to do for the utilitarians, right? Yeah. So a utilitarian liberal just doesn't have this conundrum in the first instance, right? Which means the theorists who are invoking this problem, they necessarily have to be invoking it in a way which is non-utilitarian, right? Now, I think secondly, the other group that doesn't have this problem are the ancient theorists, because the ancient theorists often position violence as part of a role that you have to play in the political community, because every citizen of a Greek city-state potentially has to fight as a hoplite. Mm. There is no deontological prohibition on violence. What is governing the use of violence is not, uh, you know, uh, don't, don't do that. It's judgment which comes from practical wisdom, attain which you acquire through attaining the virtues and, and so on. Mm. Right? So in Greco-Roman thought, violent, th there's no pacifism to begin with that has to be explained away or overcome in the political sphere because Greco-Roman thought isn't pacifist in the first instance. The question becomes what violence is acceptable and what isn't, and when to do it and when not to do it, and how to do it and how not to do it, right? What, does, what kind of violence would a good man do? Or what kind of violence would a brave or courageous person do? Or what kind of violence is appropriate for a virtuous soldier? Those are the kinds of questions that are more relevant to them, mm. right? So to even have in the beginning this idea that violence is bad, but sometimes you have to do it anyway for supervening reasons. You have to have a deontological commitment to the wrongness of violence, to the wrongness of dirtying your hands, getting blood on your hands, yeah. right? What kinds of moral doctrines have that commitment? Well, certain variants of liberal deontology yeah. and, and Christian ethics, yeah. right? So this is a, a concern which unites both medieval people and deontological liberals, but which isn't a concern for utilitarians or pre-Christian ancient philosophers. Hmm. Right? So it's kind of odd how it organizes people. It creates some unusual alliances, right? Oftentimes you'll see proponents of medieval virtue ethics, scholasticist Christian-influenced virtue ethics, you'll often see them very, very critical of liberalism and modernity and uh, presenting themselves as in alliance with ancient theorists. But in this particular case, those Christian ethicists have more in common with 
Kantian deontologists than they do with their ancient predecessors. Hmm. Right? So it kind of muddles the way that we often organize this history. Hmm. And I think that's one of the interesting things about this issue. And it's a big part of why oftentimes the word morality is just invoked without a a detailed discussion of which particular morality we're talking about. The moralities that wouldn't produce this, this problem are just not considered legitimate forms of morality in the first instance by the writers in this canon. Yeah. Though it's also interesting how in political hypocrisy, uh, David Runciman is, is discussing a set of theorists who we wouldn't necessarily identify with being um, particularly deontological. I guess partly because they're saying that hypocrisy is okay and not necessarily a problem as much as it is a kind of way of managing politics successfully. Um, people like Hobbes, Mandeville, Bentham. Um, these are not theorists who we would necessarily take to be uh, moralistic crusaders, though I guess in, in a sense Bentham is, but Bentham being a utilitarian is perfectly fine with the consequences uh, justifying the act, because indeed the result is that is all that we can use to measure whether an act is right or wrong. Um, and so... I, yeah. I think this is part of why David focuses on these theorists, because they're not necessarily the theorists that you would expect to have issues with hypocrisy, yet all of them do have some issues with hypocrisy. Right, right. And so it's interesting to see how those develop. So for one, David identifies you know, second order anti, anti-hypocrites. These are people who... Uh, don't like anti-hypocrisy, but are sometimes hypocritical about that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So these yeah. are people who, who go, oh, stop bothering about hypocrisy. The, the ends justify the means, so you know, hypocrisy shouldn't be a concern, but who nonetheless get bothered by hypocrisy in other cases. Mm. Yeah, selective anti-hypocrites. Right, because what David often finds is that people are politically opportunistic about their invocations of of hypocrisy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, you would expect a consequentialist to be inconsistent about that because a consequentialist is not deontologically anti-hypocrisy. A consequentialist is only going to be anti-hypocrisy when, consequentially, it makes sense to be. Yeah. So there is a kind of inner consistency there. It only looks like hypocrisy from the point of view of an ethics, which is in terms of hypocrisy, in terms of rules that you're supposed to follow, right? Yeah. For the consequentialist, there's an inner consistency in being hypocritical on the basis of results. Right, right. And there's another distinction that Runciman draws a, a distinction which actually goes back to Mandeville's uh, An Inquiry into the Origins of Honour in 1732 and uh, 
in this text, uh, in this dialogue between uh, Cleomenes and Horatio, uh, Cleomenes says, There are two sorts of hypocrites that differ very much from one another. To distinguish them by names, the one I would call the malicious, and the other, the fashionable. By malicious hypocrites, I mean such as pretend to a great deal of religion when they know their pretensions to be false, who take pains to appear pious and devout in order to be villains, and in hopes that they will be trusted to get an opportunity of deceiving those who believe them to be sincere. Fashionable hypocrites I call those who, without any motive of religion or sense of duty, go to church in imitation of their neighbours, counterfeit devotion, and without any design upon others, comply occasionally with all the rites and ceremonies of public worship, from no other principle than aversion to singularity and a desire of being in the fashion. The first are, as you say, the worst of them, but the other are rather beneficial to society and can only be injurious to themselves. And so it seems as though from this distinction between malicious and fashionable hypocrisy, that it's uh, the fashionable hypocrites who are okay, and the malicious hypocrites who are not okay. But the thing that makes malicious hypocrisy interesting is that the malicious hypocrites are liable to not be as concerned or as involved as the uh, fashionable hypocrites, um, because Dave Ronsman goes on to associate um, these two these two kinds of hypocrisy uh, with Weber's contention that quote political leaders had to combine detachment and involvement. Detachment without involvement reduced politics to a sterile sterile game, mere malice. Involvement without detachment turned politics into an absurd parade of convictions, mere fashion. The politician who was simultaneously involved and detached was a kind of contradiction in terms, but a necessary one. The same could be said of Mandeville's doubly hypocritical politician. Fashionable enough so that his, his hypocrisy is not pure malice, malicious enough so that it is not just the fashion. And so the question from this is, so who is the kind of politician who can be both involved and detached, both fashionable and, in Mandeville's sense, malicious? Uh, who is the politician, in other words, who can unite the ethics of responsibility and conviction? And uh, David Ronsman gives an answer, a tentative answer, uh, drawing on Mandeville um, and Hobbes. And his answer is Oliver Cromwell. And Oliver Cromwell, who uh, was the leading kind of protagonist in the English Civil War, and successfully uh, acquired the position um, of protector, um, of Lord Protector um, of England after defeating the king. And Cromwell, in his both his military endeavors leading up to this position, and in his uh, mode of governing in quite a political 
um, pragmatic and hypocritical way, was able to unite these two things because Cromwell, on the one hand, did whatever he needed to do in order to maintain uh, power, the figure of Horatio in in Mandeville's uh, 1732 dialogue, uh, said that Cromwell's pretenses to religion were no more than hypocrisy, I have allowed. But it does not appear that he desired others to be hypocrites too. On the contrary, he took pains, or at least made use of all possible means to promote Christianity among his men, and to make them sincerely religious. And David Runciman says, it is important to understand what Mandeville is suggesting here. He is not arguing that politicians should encourage their followers to be sincerely virtuous. Rather, he means that the successful politician will never require the public to play a role they are incapable of sustaining. That demand would be second-order hypocrisy, and it would make a mockery of the business of political obedience. The whole entire political performance would collapse. And so, Cromwell... um, in uniting the hypocrisies of malice and of fashion, was able to both uh, try to attend to what people needed and be aware of what kind of performances they could sustain by worrying about his own fashion, about whether he was appearing in a way which was respectable to people. Uh, For instance, refusing the title of, of king for fear of the consequences that that would bring for the legitimacy of his of his rule and appear appearing overly power hungry but on the other hand as someone who was also a malicious hypocrite cromwell was able to take a step back and in a detached way look at what was politically necessary for the time and in a sense, one could view uh, Cromwell's decision uh, to refuse the title of king at, from, from both perspectives as both a decision done out of awareness of what people were willing to accept because he wanted to appear acceptable, because he was concerned about his hypocrisy being fashionable, but also out of a concern of pure expediency in terms of political survival. This was something he just had to do. And towards the end of the book, uh, David Ronson brings in another theorist, uh, George Orwell, who suggests that the, uh, the way in which fascism and authoritarianism differed from previous kinds of political rule in modernity was that they broke the usual hypocritical act of keeping the the sword of the modern state in its scabbard, keeping it concealed, concealing the brutal reality of modern politics uh, with with flowery rhetoric. What authoritarianism did was it took the sword out of its scabbard and it made open what was always there in modern politics, but which was always denied. And interestingly, towards the end of the book, uh, David Runciman frames Cromwell not as someone who was either a straightforwardly uh, 
liberal hypocrite who kept the sword in the in the scabbard and denied the reality of of violence. But nor was he someone who had the sword uh, completely, completely obvious all of the time, because in order to rule, he couldn't rule by pure coercion. He had to use rhetoric too. And to illustrate this, David Runciman cites a statue of Cromwell from the 19th century, uh, where Cromwell is shown, it is, quote, depicted not on horseback, but standing on the ground, looking modestly downwards. In one hand, he holds a Bible. The original plan had been for the Bible to be opened, but in another classic piece of English hypocrisy, it was decided that it would be better if it was closed. In the other hand, he holds a sword. The sword has been removed from its scabbard, which hangs behind him, but it is poised deliberately pointing downwards, with its tip touching the ground. Cromwell rests his hand lightly on the top. It is a deeply compromised image, but it is also an appropriate one. It foreshadows Orwell's understanding of the unavoidable hypocrisies of democratic power, but it echoes Hobbes as well. And so, in a way, for, for, for Runciman, the different kinds of hypocrisy can be balanced. And in a way, the ethics of conviction and responsibility can be balanced, in part through the hypocrisy. And the way that morality is brought back into politics is partly through the parade and the performance of, of in the case of this, this statue made after, after Cromwell's death, through a, a sense of modesty that the politician must perform, which is emblematic in Cromwell's ref- refusal to be king. And in a kind of balance between, on the one hand, denying the brutal reality of, of, of political power and being uh, a politician purely of responsibility, purely of consequences. And on the other hand, being a politician of conviction, which is kind of like being a fashionable hypocrite, being into the fashion of the time and adapting one's convictions to the time, but also having those convictions at the same time. And so I think that's, that's a, a slightly paradoxical, but perhaps a neat way of resolving uh, the paradox of hypocrisy to suggest that sometimes politicians can be both. Well, I, I'm going to make a move that's a very me move and say that what is happening there is that the priority is being put on legitimacy. Mm. on the maintenance of order, right? Now, the maintenance of order, to succeed as a politician in in maintaining order, you have to be cognizant of what your subjects or citizens are willing to accept in terms of your behavior, you know, what you can do, what you can say that is acceptable, right? And to have an attentiveness to that, right? And that's your run-of-the-mill hypocrisy, that Mm. imitating the values of your citizens, your subjects, so that they aren't deeply offended by you and unable to accept you, right? However, if you just go along with the values of your subjects, if you try to pursue legitimacy in this kind of passive way, it will get away from you. Because part of what the political leader needs to do is influence the development Mm. of this legitimation criteria over time to make it criteria which 
will work for the leader, right? So the leader needs to play a role in crafting the legitimation criteria and therefore can't just passively imitate what is already there, right? The leader requires a certain proactive attitude in constructing the legitimation criteria. Can't just passively follow existing criteria that's already there. Right. So because of this, what you need is a balance of not interested and disinterested, but active and passive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so to, to succeed in changing the legitimation criteria such that your legitimacy will be stronger, you will sometimes have to passively follow legitimation criteria that is to some degree out of step with the criteria you would like to have at a later point. Right? You can't have it all at once. So say, you know, Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, if he had tried to make the Roman Empire Christian all at once and had tried to install a medieval dynamic where the Emperor is in some way in alignment with God and that's part of why the Emperor is legitimate, if he tried to do that all at once, it would be nonsense because the existing legitimation criteria of the Roman Empire at the time had nothing to do with that, right? To get from a Roman dynamic that's about charisma and the maintenance of the Roman peace and consensus at Concordia, to get from there to a medieval dynamic that's about the the emperor being in alignment with God and in alignment with Christian theology, you have to gradually, gradually change the way that the population thinks about what makes the ruler legitimate, right? And that means at many points, you will have to make concessions to the previously existing legitimation criteria. So Constantine continued to put out coins that had pagan gods depicted, continued to uh, make all kinds of references to, to pagan gods, right? Did not overtly try to go zero to 60 all at once. It was a very gradual process. And because it was very gradual, this process of changing the legitimation criteria had a, had a chance of working, right? But it required an emperor who, who was good at maintaining both the pre-existing ancient legitimation criteria and at cultivating the new, right? So the emperor has to make changes that will cause people to be more Christian, while at the same time continuing to act in a way which is traditional enough that those changes will be accepted. Right. So if you look at the pagan theorists who were pagan philosophers who were alive during the reign of Constantine, none of them really saw him as a problem for paganism. He wasn't recognized as posing any kind of threat to traditional values at the time. Now, his successor, uh, uh, I think it's, is it Constantius or Constantine II? Uh, yeah, it's Constantine. That's right. You have the, the series of successors, and it ends in Constantius II, right? So Constantius II was more aggressive in trying to close pagan temples than Constantine the Great had been, hmm. right? So Constantius II, to some degree, bothered the pagan community, especially late in his reign after he defeated his rivals, right? And this leads to the Emperor Julian, who is much more proactive in trying to reassert paganism in the empire, right? It's because Constantius II didn't get the balance right of 
changing the legitimation criteria while abiding by that which still exists, that you then get the reaction of Julian, right? And then mm. after Julian, when the Christian emperors come back, for a, a while after that, the Christian emperors are trying to calm things down, mm. right? So under Valentinian, you don't get very much of an aggressive effort to install Christianity. That doesn't come later. That doesn't come until later, right? The more you try to change the legitimation criteria faster than will be allowed, the slower the process ends up being, mm. right? There's a kind of sweet spot for abiding by that which exists and also changing it. Mm. Right? If you don't change it, then you're controlled by what exists. And if you don't abide by the legitimation criteria that exists, then you won't be able to make the change, right? And Julian tries very aggressively to reinstall paganism and doesn't last very long. Mm. He dies in battle, but the circumstances are somewhat suspicious. Right? So I think in a similar kind of way, we are looking for someone in politics who is able to meet the demands of people in the moment, but who will nonetheless take actions that will lead to a different moment later. Right? Yeah. That's the kind of skill set that you need. and. People position this as a kind of moral versus political or this kind of morality versus that kind of morality. But what it really is is a certain kind of, of practical wisdom, a certain kind of skillfulness mm. in being able to understand you know, what you can actually get away with in politics. What can you actually pull off? And that's a very situational thing. There isn't a set of rules for that that someone can just give you. You have mm. to read the legitimation criteria that applies in your context. You have to understand how much that will bend. How much can it bend? And what are the things that you'd need to do to bend it? And which things would be a little bit too much? And which things would be not enough? And you have to get that mix right. And that mix is something that you have to find continuously because it's always, the situation is always fluid in politics. It's always changing, right? Mm. And you see all the time people get caught. They try too hard to rule as if they had the society that they want when they don't yet have it. Yeah. Or they are too tentative. They are married to a particular legitimation criteria that's worked for them to this point in their careers, and they're afraid to do anything that might disrupt it. And therefore, they're kind of useless, and if anything, they preserve, because they continue to act in accordance with the traditional criteria, they preserve the traditional criteria beyond its sell-by date. Mm. And in this way, they can create a certain amount of dysfunction. Right. Sometimes someone is too much of their period, and sometimes someone is too much of the future. Right. And this kind of, uh, on the theme of legitimacy, this kind of links to 
Williams's question of whether legitimacy is an external or internal thing. And I guess you've been discussing Williams's framing of legitimacy as more as uh, something which is external to the um, to the um, sorry internal to the context. Uh, Rather than oh, we should clarify that so, terminology so, for yeah, the should. audience. Yes, so, yes. For legitimacy, they're kind of different ways of defining what makes a ruler legitimate. And a ruler is considered to be legitimate in an external sense if, on the basis of some external moral doctrine, that ruler is considered to be just or considered to be behaving rightly, right? A ruler is considered legitimate in an internal sense if the ruler's own subjects the citizens of the ruler state accept the ruler in practice, right? Now, of course, the way that you often get internal legitimacy is to act in a way which accords with particular external doctrines that are relevant to your citizens or to your subjects. But the particular doctrines, the particular values or conceptions of justice, which your subjects have, are liable to change. And not only are they liable to change, but as the ruler, you can do things that will change them, right? The issue is, if you do things that change the values that your subjects have, and you do too much of those things, the subjects might notice that you're not acting in accordance with their extant values, and that might cause you to lose legitimacy, right? So, rulers have a a reason to want to change the values of their subjects, because the only way that you can make meaningful rules the only way that you can that your power can mean anything in politics is if you can act to some degree contrary to the existing norms of your society right if if you can't act in a way which to some degree is at odds with the existing legitimation criteria of your subjects you're just reproducing a status quo and there's no point to you you know why why have any power right yeah i mean if you're if you're in it for power as opposed to just money or being famous right if you really want to to have an impact and to have power, power means being able to change what your citizens and subjects value so that they will accept different kinds of behavior from you, so that different kinds of behavior from the state becomes normal, becomes acceptable, right? It's not enough to just behave differently. You have to behave differently and have people accept that as better than the way that things were previously done. So that after you're dead and you're not around to keep doing those things, People will continue to do them, right? So not only you know, will it occur throughout your reign, but it'll occur in the, next, in the next person's administration, in the next person's reign. You can find people who manage to get to the end of their reign without being overthrown, without being murdered, right? Where the rules continue to apply, they have enough legitimacy to make it through their own reign. But then the question is, well, what does the next person do, right? Because if you've really managed to change the legitimation criteria, then the next person will have no choice but to do what you've done, right? So one great example that's not antique that I like to use is Franklin Roosevelt, right? Franklin Roosevelt was able to change what people expected from the federal government, right? And in changing their expectations for the federal government, he changed the legitimation criteria of American democracy, right? After FDR, to win the presidency, you had to be someone who supported Social Security, who supported the idea that a person is entitled to a state-funded pension of some size when they retire, 
right? And you couldn't be president if you didn't agree with at least that, right? That is a change in what people are willing to accept from the president. Prior to FDR, it would have been unusual for a president to have that position. After FDR, it's mandatory that the president have that position, right? And that's what makes a ruler really significant when the ruler is able to change what the people want and demand and expect from the state in a way which binds the ruler's successors, where they have no choice but to continue to follow the dead hand of the ruler who was able to impose those norms, right? And the only way you can do that is is in a very subtle way, because since you're installing new norms, you are potentially going to rub people the wrong way. So you have to be very careful and make sure you do enough to come across as traditional as you do the thing which is radical. Right. right? So FDR was very careful to not come off as, as a monarch or a king or something, especially in the earlier years of his presidency when he was doing his more radical economic reforms. Yeah. There's this famous photo taken of a toga party at the White House for FDR's birthday that the administration would not release to the public lest it contribute to comparisons between FDR and Julius Caesar, right? There's a little awareness there. You just can't be seen to be trying to radically change the state because if you're seen to be trying to radically change the state, what you're doing won't be accepted, right? And yet, you must radically change the state. You can't just do nothing. Otherwise, why, why bother? Right? So it's this careful dance. Mm. And this gets framed as a kind of morality versus politics or this ethic versus that ethic. I don't, I don't think that it needs to be antagonistic in that way. If you really care about the values you're trying to advance as a political leader, you will advance them in a way which is compatible with legitimacy because you want those values to genuinely be instantiated and to survive your own demise. So if you right. really care about the values, you'll do them in a politically sensible way. Yeah. It is interesting how oh, it, sometimes political leaders are praised for their uh, realism, though uh, sometimes condemned at the time uh, for the means they used to get there um, by by writers um, later on. Um, I mean, for instance, Machiavelli's praise of Cesare Borgia for his um, astute political realism, both on the battlefield and in uh, and, and, and diplomatically. Uh, though that is ultimately why, in some senses, he failed, um, and in uh, getting the support of the citizens in the territories that he conquered. But Cesare Borgia did fail, and uh, Machiavelli claims that this was essentially uh, due to bad luck and due to uh, losing the support of some important people in Rome. Um, despite the fact that, uh, ironically, the reason that Cesare Borgia had the power that he had was because of 
the support uh, from his father, uh, Pope Alexander. And I think there might be a similar thing going on with Oliver Cromwell, because uh, despite Oliver Cromwell's undoubted achievements, uh, he did ultimately fail in his project because his son, uh, Richard Cromwell, uh, uh, was in power after Oliver Cromwell's death for a very short amount of time before uh, before the restoration of the uh, monarchy in uh, in 1660. Um, and though there was the glorious revolution in 1688 when William of Orange was put on the throne, and once again uh, there was an attempt um, to reconcile the monarchical impulse uh, with a more parliamentary um, impulse, re- reconciling the aristocratic supporters of monarchy with the more um, mercantile and gentry uh, supporters of parliament in the English Civil War. Uh, Cromwell's project itself failed, uh, despite some of its uh, legacies and echoes later on in history. Um, and this is despite the fact that Cromwell is alleged to have been highly attuned to the context and attuned to what was going on and was alleged to be acting uh, by by, by Mandeville and a few centuries later by Runciman uh, out of self-interest, but in a way that uh, he was able to portray himself as as moral, as saintly at one point uh, Mandeville suggests, uh, while also uh, portraying or performing this modesty too. Um, And so I think there's a degree to which um, the whole discussion of uh, particular figures who are to... to, 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 to act as kind of redeeming political heroes in Weber's sense, uh, due to their combination of the different uh, political ethics, due to their astute sense of what's politically legitimate and acceptable in the time, uh, even these figures are uh, find themselves kind of highly constrained by context, um, by uh, and by contingency, uh, both. Um, you know, contingency of health in Cromwell's case, contingency of of uh, diplomacy and political contingency in in in, in the case of uh, in, in the case of Borgia, and and I think in, in Roosevelt's case too, a kind of contingency because the New Deal uh, historians recently argued was not as successful in the 30s as it was once uh, well, the Second World War started and the United States started revving up in, in, in its industry uh, once it got involved in the war. And this allowed some of the promises of the New Deal to be put into practice domestically in America in the way that they weren't fully developed in the, in the 30s beforehand. And so... I guess there's a way in which, um, despite the emphasis on 
on politicians and on particularly on in, on individual politicians in a lot of this literature. Uh, politicians do really find themselves so constrained that even the most astute and supposedly realistic politicians can fall short of what the context uh, demands because the context makes what yeah. they're trying to do impossible. Right. So much depends on what the context demands in the first place. What's the legitimation criteria when you're starting off and entering in? Because that's going to constrain to a significant degree what you're able to do. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that oftentimes the political figures who are lionized, especially by radicals on both the left and right, are the are kind of kamikaze figures. They're people who don't pay enough heed to legitimacy and therefore don't survive. Mm. But because they didn't pay enough heed to legitimacy, they expressed the values that these people have in a highly cathartic way. Mm. Right. But of course, this means they have to go down in flames because the price of their bold uh, radicalism is that they have no possibility of achieving legitimacy with a population which has anything to do with the context in which they entered. Yes, and that's not just... I, I want to say that that's not just being politicians being too moralistic in the case of Cesare and Cromwell. These were not moralists. These were people, according to most accounts, acting from some kind of political uh, self-interest. Um, in some senses, politicians of, uh, who followed the ethic of responsibility rather than an ethic of conviction. Um, and so I, I wonder whether there's a sense in which attending to leg legitimacy itself can, can sometimes fail. And I wonder well, whether- it's just such a very difficult thing to do. It's very hard to do. And there are lots of ways to screw it up. Yes. But and mm. the ways in which you screw it up are the ways which make you someone who tends to be admired by someone who is not a politician, who therefore is not thinking about it politically, yes, and who just wants to see some particular set of values, right? Yes. If you're someone who has a kind of aesthetic appreciation for particular historical figures because you associate them with certain valiant lost causes, then you're going to like the people who are politically failures. But, but Cromwell and Cesare are not associated with valiant causes. Well, in a sense, they are by I don't political think, realists. I don't think they're widely admired. No, I, I wouldn't say but, that they're in the category that I'm talking about. Right. Whereas I, I'm, I'm thinking about politicians who are uh, supposedly highly realistic and put responsibility before conviction and who are able to practice all sorts of hypocrisy and justify all sorts of violence in pursuit of their political goals, because... Yeah, this is a new point I'm making. Right. This is a new point. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I know it's a little bit of a curveball, but just, just something that has been stuck on my mind these last few minutes, just the... You, you won't find a lot of people who really love the politicians who make the most difference. They will be people who are endlessly frustrating because they won't come through cathartically. Oh, right, right. I guess someone perhaps like uh, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, whose uh, controversial foreign policy uh, in, in the eyes of many has invalidated the, the, uh, the fruits of his domestic policy in in terms of civil rights legislation and the Great Society program. 
Right, but that's not the kind of contradiction we're talking about because those right. are different issues. That's true. Yeah. I think the kind of contradiction we're talking about is the fact that Lyndon Johnson, for instance, used extraordinarily racist language with his black driver, language which would be entirely politically disqualifying in our contemporary context. Yet a person who used those those terms nonetheless played the key role in the passage of a very large amount of civil rights legislation which had a very large impact on how race developed in the United States over the decades which followed how racialized views of politics developed, right? Uh, huge impact. I think mm. a lot of the time we get caught on the way that people are expressing themselves aesthetically and whether we find that cathartically appealing. And that often causes us to miss the more significant moves that really affect what people are going to believe, how people are going to think, what the legitimation criteria will be for future administrations going forward. And yeah. I think that I, I tend to have a little bit more admiration for the person who who maybe doesn't doesn't succeed personally, but who nonetheless makes a large enough number of important changes before the end of their term uh, that or their time in, in office or their reign or whatever, that the future is still heavily bound by their decisions. And such a person might not be admired or, or could even be despised by people. But if we're living in the world that that person, person's decisions produced to a significant degree, you know, that person is, is quite a significant figure. I think that those people are also not the very highest type of politician. The highest type of politician is a politician who makes great changes and yet is also beloved, right? But yes. there's the kind of politician who's beloved but accomplished nothing and yes. the kind of politician who accomplished many things and is not beloved. I want to say that the politician who accomplishes things and is not beloved is higher than the one who is beloved but accomplished very little. Yes, yes. Right. So, for instance, Barack Obama is beloved, but accomplished very little because his presidency ended in a successor, Donald Trump, who was in many ways his antithesis in terms of his uh, demeanor and aesthetic and so on, and who certainly did not develop any policies which were built off of um, Barack Obama's in any real substantive way. There's nothing that Barack Obama did differently from the people who preceded him, that his successor took up and continued. Yes, yeah, I, I, was, th I was thinking of that contrast between, yeah, Johnson and Obama when you mentioned, when you mentioned that, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a good point, and perhaps it, I wonder whether it does come back in a sense to responsibility and conviction, because responsibility for Weber is about consequences. Whereas conviction is about having the inner, um, holding the inner moral truth to your heart and staying true to that principle. But may maybe, maybe in a sense, are, are you suggesting that the that the that the consequences are more important than the particular convictions which a politician may have though i suppose you know you are making a different point which is also about the legitimacy which is perhaps a third variable because even if you have well 
Yeah. Not a third. Legitimacy okay. is how properly politics and morality come together. Well, right. I was, right? Because yeah. to achieve internal internal legitimacy, yeah. you need external legitimacy. You need to have some kind of account of external legitimacy that you're operating in alignment with. So if you are to succeed in instantiating any kind of conception of the good in politics, the way you do this is by getting the citizens and subjects, or whatever you want to call them, to espouse the values which you have, and to demand that the state continue to espouse those values, right? So the way that you accomplish a moral agenda in politics is by making that moral agenda the legitimation criteria which is relevant to future rulers, Yes. right? Yes. So to accomplish your external values, the way you do that is by making them internal, by making it so that the legitimacy of the state depends on the state continuing to satisfy a set of values that you have constructed, which differ meaningfully from the values that were relevant before you, right? If you're able to do that, then you've had a significant impact in politics. Yeah. And what you've done is you've used politics to instantiate a conception of the good, to instantiate real substantive values by making those values the values that the public uses to bind future sovereigns, future administrations, future politicians. Right. But I, right? And, and as you say, you need that external moral conception in order to apply it through legitimacy. Otherwise, you're just using whatever values are floating around at the time in order to construct the legitimation story rather than bringing anything anything fresh. It's just reproducing the existing conditions. Um, yeah, which can be a kind of low cunning, but there's nothing morally impressive about it. The, the, the yes. truly impressive politician is impressive both in the moral sense of having instantiated real meaningful value-based change but also in the political sense of having instantiated it, of having actually accomplished it, right? Yes, yes. The values that the politician chose are the values that we espouse, and therefore we admire what the politician did because we still have the values which the politician gave to us or encouraged us to acquire, right? So when we really admire a politician, it's because they caused us to have the values under which that politician's behavior is praiseworthy. Right, they helped us come to see that we should care about the things that the politician cared about, and so we thank them for showing us some aspect of what we take to be the good or the truth about how human beings should live, and we credit them with helping us to see that that's how we should live, that that's a better way of living than the way we previously lived before them, right? And in that way, morality and politics come together and, and don't have to be pitted against each other as contravening ethics or contravening systems, right? Right, right. Because on the one hand, you have the coercive aspect of politics where, in a sense, I guess, here, power is the interface between politics and um, something like economics, whereas on the other hand, something like legitimacy interfaces between politics and morals, where the political is somewhere between is and ought, and power and legitimacy are how politics interfaces with is and ought. Um, 
on, on your terms of legitimacy is how we unite politics and morality because it is a kind of yeah. a interface between um bet- bet- between uh that between those two things um i, I wonder yeah, i think where it's all all goes wrong with with these other theories that involve a kind of dualism between these things is that these theories have conceptions of morality that are to some degree inherently anti-political. So if you have a set of values that to some degree contradict fundamentally with what it means to have a state, then it's not possible to instantiate your values as the legitimation narrative of the state without having a constant conflict between the state's behavior and those values, right? Yes. So the anarchist who doesn't really believe in states, their subversive project is to create a set of values that are incompatible with any kind of state which can realistically form, but to nonetheless make those values the legitimation criteria which the citizens and subjects have. So if the citizens affirm a set of values which is incompatible with any kind of of statist project, any kind of state, then there's a permanent antagonism between the state and the population, which can be the source of endless conflict, right? Mm. So I think what what makes a, a moral theory subversive is it's having been designed to be fundamentally antagonistic to politics from the beginning. Yes, yes. And I guess that in, in a sense, uh, no morality which seems more like this uh, at first glance than Kant's deontological morality, which asks us to appeal not to hypothetical moral imperatives which say, if we want this, then we should do this, but rather to a categorical imperative which just says, do this. And if we're adhering to such an imperative, uh, which could take the form, Kant argues, of we should always only do those things, um, which are in conformity to a rule which we think that anybody in our situation uh, would be and should be uh, willing uh, to follow if they're thinking rationally. Uh, and so f- a lot of people try to apply a Kantian morality uh, to politics to make something like a dirty hands argument to say that, well, if politicians are pursuing a moral principle, how can they possibly get their hands dirty through violence or hypocrisy? Because then they're doing something which they wish that other people in their situation uh, shouldn't necessarily do, or perhaps they are. Uh, and perhaps. I think. Well, you, see, see, yeah. with Kant, it depends on how complicated you make the rules. Yes. With Kant, there's room to make the rules complicated enough that they can account for the particular features of the context that you're in. Yes. And so, what a lot of Kantians do who interface with other moral traditions is to increasingly complicate the rules so that they do take into account the things which other traditions point out yes. as weaknesses. I think that the moral theory which has a much harder time dealing with this is medieval Christianity. Okay. 
And that's why Machiavelli says that you just can't bring this theory into politics. Right. Because for Machiavelli, it's too antagonistic with the political. And the reason why the Catholic consensus collapses is that its moral claims are too obviously antagonistic with the political realities of its of the period. And too obviously antagonistic with the behavior which politics demanded from even the Pope. Mm. I think that, yeah. And so because of this collapse in Christian morality as a basis for legitimacy, we then get different liberal attempts to replace that with something else which might perform a similar role. But the problem is nothing can perform that kind of role Christianity was, to a large degree, a bit of an anarchist idea mm. at the outset. It, it was a bit fundamentally subversive in the Roman context, which is why the Roman state treated it as a subversive thing, right? It is only by heavily distorting it that it can be not subversive. Yes. And those distortions, once you have a level of education which allows larger numbers of people to participate in the discourse, are too obvious. A big part of what made medieval Catholicism work is that you can't, most people can't read unless they've been trained as priests. And if they've been trained as priests, they've been trained to avoid heresy as a matter of extreme importance. Right, But once you have a world where lots of people can read the Bible, then heresy will continuously appear from the point of view of medieval Catholicism, and it will just not be something which can sustain, at least not politically. Yeah. And so that the history of the last 500 years, you know, the kind of post-Catholic history is a history of trying to replace this thing which was fundamentally untenable in the first instance, right? I think that certain liberals have tried to embrace a liberalism which is similar in various respects to Christianity, and because of this, it struggles to reconcile itself with politics. I think, I think there are um, one notable exception to, to this, though it might not be quite an exception, um, and if it is, it might be an exception that proves the rule, is um, the book Moral Man and Immoral Society by Reinhold Niebuhr, who was a, uh, a reformed theologian uh, in the US, uh, lived from 1892 to 1971. And Niebuhr does take the view that is sometimes labelled um, as commentators as Christian realism, which takes a certain moral perspective on the world, uh, a certain uh, theological perspective on the world seriously, also taking seriously the realities of power, partly through echoing uh, Augustine's uh, uh, notion uh, that we are all uh, original sinners and therefore deeply morally compromised from the outset. And if we accept this aspect of Christianity, then it uh, becomes quite easy to say why it is 
that um, that it's quite hard to apply morality to politics. And the reason Niebuhr says is that because the majority of people, most of the time, find it hard to act on motives other than self-interest. Um, therefore, politics um, being in a lot of cases ruled by the wills of the majority, I guess even if it's not a democracy, the leader still has to legitimate themselves to the citizenry. And therefore, uh, the morality that will emerge from such a society is a morality of of self-interest. Uh, and so Niebuhr's book Moral Man and Immoral Society suggests that while it may be possible for some individuals some of the time to be moral, most of the time, because most of us have a hard time being moral and acting on some motive other than self-interest, um, it's the case that we live in immoral societies. And Niebuhr says this is especially the case with relations among states, that when states are relating to each other, then morality has to really go out the window uh, because uh, security is really the sole uh, is really the sole end in, in that kind of case. And this, I think, in some sense echoes Hobbes's suggestion that without a state, it's not really possible to enforce moral rules. And so there's a curious way in which Niebuhr, though the title suggests that Niebuhr's going to take the view that politics is, is somewhere where morality really just can't apply and that we can just be moral as individuals if we try to, uh, Niebuhr does uh, conclude the book by saying an adequate political morality must do justice to the insights of both moralists and political realists by counselling the use of such types of coercion as are most compatible with the moral and rational factors in human society, and by discriminating between the purposes and ends for which coercion is used. And um, so I think perhaps uh, Niebuhr would be, uh, I think, quite persuaded by what you were saying earlier, Benjamin, about the need to both have moral principles, have that kind of um, external uh, legitimacy, but also look at how these principles can be applied to the context uh, by ascertaining what people feel in that context and by being sensitive to that. Um, well, I, I certainly don't want to give the impression that I'm saying that Christians are anarchists or have to be anarchists. I merely want to make the point that it is difficult to have at scale as the legitimation basis for the state Christianity. Right. But I, I think the irony in this case is, is But that this is an area where I'm agreeing with with uh oh how do you pronounce it? Um I think it's Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, but I may be I, I may be wrong. Yeah, about. Niebuhr, yeah. Yeah. I Yeah, I think I I, I, what I'm saying there doesn't necessarily conflict with that. Mm. Uh, it's certainly many, many people have been Catholics and statists. I think most people who are Catholic are statist. Uh, but I'm making the point that the reason that the Catholic consensus broke down is that that arrangement was not sustainable at scale. You can have individuals who have these positions together, 
but it is not sustainable to have that at scale. That level of moral consensus with a morality that is is that demanding based on that set of texts tends to lead to, if you have an educated society where lots of people can read, heretical accounts which position that morality as antagonistic to the state. Right, right. And I guess this, this in some sense makes sense of uh, Weber's argument that, um, that while Weber did argue that the ethics of conviction and responsibility may be difficult to reconcile, he says, quote, on the other hand, it is immensely moving when a mature person, whether young or old, who feels with his whole soul the responsibility he bears for the real consequences of his actions and who acts on the basis of an ethics of responsibility, says at some point, here I stand, I can do no other, as Luther said at the Diet of Worms in 1521. That is something genuinely human and profoundly moving, for it must be possible for each of us to find ourselves in such a situation at some point if we are not inwardly dead. In this respect, the ethics of conviction and the ethics of responsibility are not absolute opposites. They are complementary to one another, and only in combination do they produce the true human being who is capable of having a vocation for politics. And so Weber, I think, inciting, inciting Luther here, uh, taking a stand against uh, the, um, the papal authorities of Catholic Christendom, um, demonstrates, as you were saying, Benjamin, that the response to Catholicism was through this kind of um, heretical, um, uh, heretical rebellion against the authority, but one which, interestingly, was only made possible by uh, the sheltering of people like Luther and Calvin by, uh, by states which became Protestant, uh, particularly uh, uh, states in the Holy Roman Empire, which were trying to gain more autonomy from the Holy Roman Emperor and from the Pope. And, uh, and so the emergence of Protestantism goes hand in hand, not with anarchism, but with the emergence of new states. Though I guess there is that international anarchy aspect to that too, where the states are competing with, you, with each other, with domestic hierarchies, but in this condition well, of international anarchy. But that isn't anarchy. where it ends up. We don't end up with Protestant states. We end up with a kind of spiraling Protestantism and then a secularism and the collapse of states in the post-Catholic world that are directly linked to religion in that kind of way. Okay. Uh, we don't end with Protestant states. That's just a way station on the way to where we are now, which is a world where these Western states are not able to have the kind of relationship with the church which they previously had or with any church which they previously had. Yeah, yeah. Because there's a lack of, of sustainability to this kind of legitimation narrative. It relied on a kind of totalitarianism, which prevented large numbers of people from reading. I think this is really, and, and this is a quite pointed critique I want to make of medieval thought. Medieval thought relies on large numbers of people not reading. Hmm. And therefore, in, in the possibility that you can have one particular interpretation of a set of texts, which no one is in an epistemic position to disagree with because nobody can read except for people who are already members of 
the church which is set is preaching this particular line. Mm. So it's it's a deeply unsustainable thing. And so when you try to replace a church which depends on large numbers of people not reading with other churches that stem from the printing press and from larger and larger numbers of people reading, you just get a spiraling theological conflict over how to interpret the text, which is not resolvable. So you then try to base politics on something else. And so I think that the the fundamental problem is in positioning politics and morality as separate to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because if you if you understand them together through the concept of legitimacy, you don't have to have this antagonistic relationship. And that avoids the possibility of moral theories that are incompatible with politics or political theories which are incompatible with morality. And so much of what we've had, beginning with Catholicism and and moving on from there, has put these things into an antagonism that they don't need to be in, and which makes it extremely difficult to sustain polities over long periods of time and keeps us constantly under the weight, uh, under the sword of Damocles, the sword of of civil conflict and uh, major ideological conflict, and yet to some degree today, nuclear war, because we can't seem to find a stable equilibrium the concepts that we've developed make such an equilibrium impossible. The way that we've defined these things, such that they can be in a permanent antagonism, makes it so that you can't have any sustainable way of relating the terms to each other. Yeah. And I guess that, in a sense, that the, the, the need to balance morality um, and politics that the call to reunite these things uh, sometimes has a sense of irony because uh it, once upon a time in um both in aristotle's ethics and in the politics the the principal criterion for doing something in an ethical or a political way is the golden mean finding a balance between the extremes in both cases. So both the moral individual um, and the moral state have to, in order to, um, in order to be successful, have to try to um, balance different concerns um, and be like Aristotle's archer who has to aim uh, aim their arrow, depending on uh, the direction of the winds on the de- on the day, on the visibility of the target, and it has to balance all these different considerations, all these different aspects of the context, in order that they may still hit their target. And I guess today, perhaps, the opposition between responsibility and conviction is like saying all we should care about. Are the conditions, the way, the direction in which the, the wind is going, or the visibility, the context, in other words, or on the other hand, the need to hit the target, um, and uh, instead of trying to say, well, we need to care about the context and the conditions in order to hit the target, which for both uh, Plato and for Aristotle, though in different ways, is 
the good, or for Aristotle, some good, some human good, some political good. And so well, for for yeah. the Greeks, the citizen is also a political actor. Yeah. And I think that for Aristotle, the person who achieves the most ethically is also a person who achieves a lot politically. Uh, and so if you're able to instantiate values politically, you'll be able to instantiate them at a scale that is much greater than can be done with any individual private act. Right, which I guess... The successful politician is also, in a real sense, the most moral person. Because the successful politician makes the greatest strides for the values that the politician espouses that are makeable in the context in which the politician operates. The great politician finds that maximum and consistently hits it and therefore makes the most positive change, which is compatible with the context. Hmm. Though I wonder whether... At the same time, there is a distinction between what is morally tolerable and what is morally laudable. And sometimes, even if morality and politics are aligned, it is necessary to do things which may be tolerable, but not necessarily laudable in themselves, morally. I think there is a distinction. Well, but, but see, that just reintroduces a conception of morality that presupposes the antagonism between morality and politics. Right. Yes. To, to make that move is to presuppose the distinction which I'm trying to negate. But can it truly be said that uh, that what politicians sometimes do, say to defend the state, say through waging a war, um, as happened, you know, both in ancient times and and in modern times, can be truly said to be completely moral? Though it may be politically expedient and moral in the long run, sometimes well, there the is question a price is: to be Is it really the, the case? Run. Is it really the case that the best way to instantiate the values which the politician is in politics to instantiate? Because I think to be a politician for the right reasons is to be involved in politics to instantiate some positive conception of the good or positive value set. Right? Is that really? the best way to do that, right? Now, I'm not invoking a utilitarian calculus. I'm not saying you add up the number of people who get hurt versus the number of people that you benefit. I'm saying, is it really the case that the best way to instantiate a set of values, to make them part of the legitimation criteria of the society, is to fight that particular fight? Right. And I don't think that's something that can be said ex ante. I think sometimes when politicians choose to fight, it's not the best move or the right move. No, of course. And other times it could be the best move or the right move, right? So it's not to say, I don't think we can categorically say that violence is or isn't justified, that political violence is or isn't okay, or that the ends do or don't justify the means. What we can say is that sometimes a set of values can only be instantiated if that fighting is done, and other times that fighting is not the best way or is even counterproductive in instantiating those values, right? Yes. Yes, though, I think... But the, the question for the politician is how do I get a society that sustainably adheres to the values that are important? 
Though I, I think at the same time, so there is this unity of politics and morality in antiquity, but there is also a priority for politics over morality, uh, despite the unity of these two things, which I think in some sense um, makes sense of Aristotle's claim in, in the politics, that, quote, as the body is prior in order of generation to the soul, so is the irrational uh, prior to the rational. Um, yeah, that's the sustainable part. It's got to be sustainable because if you can't sustain it, there's no point to it because you aren't producing a society which adheres to a conception of the good if that society collapses or is conquered. So that is a prerequisite. Yeah. Right? Hmm. And that's the sense in which these things are combined. Values which are not compatible with the survival of the state can't possibly you can't that can't possibly be the best values to instantiate in a state so, the best values to instantiate in a state are values which a state can instantiate and can continue to exist while instantiating right but there's a difference between the values that are practiced in international politics and the values that are instantiated within the state and that is quite crucial i think especially given that plato and aristotle didn't discuss in uh, relations among city states that much whereas thucydides did and is therefore considered as being more similar to. to I, I don't realists. see any fundamental antagonism. The same judgment applies. It's just the same judgment will often get different results depending on differences in context. No, but I think it's a completely different case because if in international relations, it's a different context, but it's not a different principles. Well, the, thing the same principles will apply differently in different contexts if those principles are wisely conceived. Yes, but the, right? there is- Which is why I defend Kant a bit and say, well, the Kantians can conceive of their rules in ways which are more context sensitive and that can put them in a stronger position. Mm. I, I want to tell the audience, we're going to have a few weeks off here because we're heading into the part of the year where Edmund is taking his exams, right? So, we're not going to interfere with Edmund's revision process because that would be wrong. So instead, we're going to have a couple of, of weeks off. We're going to record the next episode on June 20th. So it's going to be a little bit. Now, I'm going to stretch it. I'm going to put this episode and the previous episode out you know, in a little bit of an odd place in the schedule to try to stretch the space. But we are going to be off for you know, about a month, right? Uh, Hopefully, with the way I release the episodes, it'll feel more like we're off for maybe two weeks. But there is going to be a little bit of spacing that's done to, to make that happen. Mm. All right? Uh, and if you're wondering why previous, if you're listening to this later, why there's been a little bit of a stretching, it's been because Edmund has been doing exams. So that will finish on June 20th, and then we will move back to a more normal schedule. All right? So thanks so much, guys, for listening. And uh, do feel free to support the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash politicaltheory101. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.